and then went back to university uh, to do a doctorate in arts, having degrees in engineering and um, masters and all sorts of things, looking at Indigenous stories about animals. And I just started it and I had a contract from a publisher wanting to write to read these books and it occurred to me they were memorising vast amounts of information, Indigenous cultures in particular at that stage, Australian Aboriginal cultures. They were memorising vast amounts of information when I struggled with the day of the week, which is why at school history and all those subjects were nigh and impossible for me and I managed to fail French, Latin and German. I never <laughs> found a foreign language I could pass. So memory's always been my big problem. Mm. And then I started saying, well, how the hell are they doing this when I can't? Um, Hello, PKMers. Welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Halfon, the podcast where I interview fellow PKMers and dive into the unique ways they use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. This week, we have Dr. Kelly, a science writer and adjunct researcher associate at La Trobe University, specializing in the study of memory methods used by oral cultures, particularly indigenous societies. She's a monomist and uses indigenous memory technologies to commit large amounts of information to memory. She's authored several books, including The Memory Craft, which I have read, The Memory Code, Songlines, and Knowledge and Power in Prehistoric Societies, as well as a few others. She's a diverse background in engineering, physics, mathematics, information technology, and gifted education. Dr. Kelly, I am personally very excited for this chat that we're about to have because I read your book. Um, I also implemented a lot of the things that you talked about inside of it, like the bestiary, the visual alphabet. I'm starting to use those inside of my life. And I think a lot of the listeners of my podcast will get a lot of value from hearing about what your thoughts are on memory. So the first question I wanted to to dive into is what is your story? How did you come to where you are today? Before I answer that, I won't go on if you call me Dr. Kelly. Please call me Lynn. <laughs> call you Lynn? Yeah. Okay. Because I was once your age a long time ago. Um, how did I get here? I was born. I'm Australian. You probably worked that out. I was born. I had wonderful family, loved school got married, lovely, long, happy marriage. So my biography is as boring as all hell. But what I did on the, it was a lovely life to live. You just don't want to read about it. Um, So I went to school, fell in love with physics, much to my surprise, went to uni and was told I couldn't do engineering because I was a girl. So I Mm. immediately changed faculties and did engineering. I like taking on things that are hard um, and it was hard. I nearly <laughs> nearly proved them right. But I didn't want to be an engineer. I always wanted to be a teacher. So I went in and taught physics, maths, and then computers came along and I got into the computer industry. So a lot of what I talk about, we I hope get onto ancient mo- monuments and all that, everything I think about is information systems, that mm. I am fanatically rational. My mother was a founder and member of the International Skeptics and I was a founding member of the Australian Skeptics. I come from a really rational way of thinking, although my recent work sort of made me a bit more confused. But um, 
basically I look at everything as information systems and rational. Why would people do this? They do not do things for no reason. So I taught for 1,500 years and had a daughter along the way and then went back to university uh, to do a doctorate in arts, having degrees in engineering and um, masters and all sorts of things, looking at Indigenous stories about animals. And I just started it and I had a contract from a publisher wanting to write to read these books and it occurred to me they were memorising vast amounts of information, Indigenous cultures in particular at that stage, Australian Aboriginal cultures. They were memorising vast amounts of information when I struggled with the day of the week, which is why at school, history and all those subjects were nigh impossible for me, and I managed to fail French, Latin and German. I never <laughs> found a foreign language I could pass. So memory's always been my big problem. Mm. And then I started saying, well, how the hell are they doing this when I can't? Um, and that took me, that was 12 years ago, on a, that one question, how the hell are they memorising so much stuff changed the direction of my life completely into trying to answer that question. Mm. Mm. Wow. So so you started off diving into engineering because like you said, you had that very rational side of, of thinking. And then you went to the arts and that led you down that question of like, how are they memorizing this incredible amount of stuff? And I think that we should dive like straight into that because of how I think prominent that question is in a lot of the Everything things you've I've created. Done. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think, uh, can you give us like a bit of a, a story of maybe what you discovered along that path for how they were memorizing the incredible amount of information? Right. Um, the easiest way to start is with the Greek memory palaces. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to get out of it is that they are not Greek. The Greeks did not invent memory palaces. They are the first to have documented them. But so Indigenous knowledges use the same things except much more flash and fancy. Yeah. So and memory palace works by taking each location. So I'm in my kitchen at the moment and this happens to be on my country's memory palace. I am sitting at the table, which is number three, my say I've memorised the countries in population order. So China's over there where I'm pointing, which is really good on an audio broadcast, isn't it? <laughs> India. I'm now at the kitchen table number three. I've got to put USA in here. So I have Donald Trump permanently sitting at my kitchen table. Mm -hmm. And so by making some association, there's a Bollywood production going on under the foot part, under the bookcase for India and a Chinese meal being delivered at the door. Once you've got a hook and linked it to a physical place, that's the way the brain naturally works. And the 2014 Nobel Prize for Medicine was for the um, this guys and woman who discovered the way place cells in the brain link information with physical places. So our brains do that really, really well. It's why it's the most effective method. And so you go on, and I've got, you know, every country in the world, if I go right around the property and down the street, get the bread and fruit and come home. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a hook and then you layer more and more information. So everything I want to know about America, I layer on top of the story that started at my kitchen table. 
So mm-hmm. that's the starting point. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it totally does. And it's why every memory champion in the world uses memory palaces. It's why the ancient Greeks, Cicero, Augustine, all that lot, used them and documented them, and they were taught right up into the Middle Ages in all schools. So why don't we teach it now? It works so well. Yeah. We're working on that, starting getting them back into schools. Okay, so that's memory palaces and that's the simple level. Mm-hmm. All Indigenous cultures do that. They all link information with physical locations in the landscape, but they go a lot further with it. So let's use, for example, the Australian Aboriginal, but what I showed with my research is this is the same for Indigenous cultures the world over. So in, in Australia, once you start adding information to the landscape, it's called country and it's with a capital C. So country is the landscape with all this knowledge associated. But they add in everything else that makes knowledge memorable to make it permanent. They mm. add in stories with really vivid characters. They add in performances and that's the key. They add in music. Every single thing is sung and music is the other big thing that the brain holds on to. So you can remember songs you learned as a kid and you can't remember what the lecturer said in class last week. (laughs) So if you sing information at physical locations with wild stories and act it all out because muscle memory and dance and that also helps, you are putting together the most sophisticated memory system for the human brain, and that's why they're called song lines, these huge tracts through the landscape. The Yanua people, they've mapped 800 kilometres of it. So in their brains, they can travel 800 kilometres, location by location, information stored at each one, which they can sing and perform. It's astounding, and every Indigenous culture does it. Wow. So let me try and summarise what you just said, and you can tell me if that's correct. It sounds like the Greeks were the first to talk about memory techniques, like the memory palace, but they were being used way before by indigenous cultures. And indigenous cultures had such incredible memories because they they knew, they understood what makes something memorable, which is like, we remember characters better than abstract concepts. We remember things in stories we remember things in space very well. Uh, we remember like multi-sensory, vivid, vulgar things. And like they combined all of that in what you just described as like a song line in order to make something incredibly, incredibly memorable. What were some of the things that they stored in, in these knowledge systems? Right. With the Greeks and Romans, they will have been using what had had bef- happened before, but um, with mm-hmm. literacy, they were then writing some stuff down. So they were still using the technique, but they weren't l- using it to store what they could write down because they now had writing. And the sort yeah. of things that are stored are practical. There's this image of Indigenous people living in some kind of fog of superstition. They would simply not have survived if that was the case. So uh, most of the songs are about navigation they're about where you can find the best flint in australia we are the driest continents on the earth they will track right across the desert going from waterhole to waterhole and 
if they're taught the song, they will go places they've never travelled before and trust that song to get them to the next waterhole. Wow. And it works. Um, they survived. So you've got every single animal, every plant. So let's take an American example, the Navajo. These researchers are very hard to find because to to find this, you need the Navajo elders and experts, you need linguists and you need scientists all in a team to work it out. So there's mm-hmm. one report done by the Navajo of over 700 insects, just insects, all identified, all recorded um, and recorded in their song and mythology. So we'll get to mythology in a moment. So that's just insects. They've also got every mammal in their territory and not all those insects were actually in Navajo country. They knew of things from elsewhere. They had things that had been not known for centuries. It was all still stored because it's information, just like we love information. So do all humans. Uh, So then add in all the mammals and the birds, there'll be hundreds of them, and um, all the amphibians and reptiles and fish and all the rest. You've probably got a 1,000 animals. Add in probably hundreds, if not close to a 1,000 plants, because a lot of the ones that are really useful are tiny. Mm-hmm. They need to know them all, but they also need to know the ones that are no use because if you have to test it every time, uh, every generation, you've got a bit of a problem. You're never going to get there. So they need to know every plant. Then they need all the geology, astronomy. The Pueblo in America are incredible astronomers. Uh, and so you go on and on. Genealogies are incredibly complex everything and it's done relation like a relational database not like a neat tree so everything's related to everything else incredibly complex all stored in song and associated with location Mm. so the things they were memorizing were incredibly practical like things that would help them literally survive (laughs) find water find flint know when to plant, know where animals would be moving in season. That is like fascinating. And, and all yeah. of law and ethics. So they had to survive mm. physically, but as a group they have to survive culturally. So you've got complete legal systems. So a great example is the Pueblo. I, The reason I'm particularly interested in the Pueblo in the American Southwest is that um, they, they managed to stay on their own country. Nearly all the other cultures were moved to reservations and that, which they called it the Walk of Tears because they lost their contact with all this information, which mm. heartbreaking. I mean, they were physically abused, but they were psychologically abused too. Yeah. Anyway, oh. the Pueblo didn't. And so if you get their corn stories, so there's a Tiwa, which is one of the Pueblo writer. Alfonso Ortiz, who writes about corn and he writes about the corn mothers and the corn maidens and you end up with seven different colours and multiple colours and sub-varieties and it's all in mythology. So it's all these stories of the corn mothers and the corn maidens. But if you then read Richard I. Ford and Alfonso Ortiz tells you to read Richard I. Ford, who's a botanist, he will translate that or interpret it by working together as which colours should be planted at what times and at what distance because corn cross-pollinates. If you plant just one colour corn, like we like the nice yellow sweet corn, and you have a bad season for it, you just killed off your entire population because they're dependent on corn. 
Yeah. They plant in proportions to ensure that they will always have some corn no matter what, and they have to plant at a distance to make sure it doesn't cross-pollinate, a distance in physically and in time. And all those rules and regulations are stored in the songs and performed in the kiva, and we must get to restricted places. That's really important. So you've got to ask me next about restricted places in case I forget. Yeah. So they sing the songs yeah. in the kiva which gives them all the rules and regulations which are then implemented. And they have survived for thousands of years depending on an extremely fragile crop through knowledge and brilliant knowledge and no mm. monocultures. Mm. Mm. Well, at first I wanted to really harbor down on what you said earlier about like all the cultures that get moved away from their physical environment. That is literally horrible like it is not only psychological pain from just having to move to a different place it is intellectual pain because they they lose an entire knowledge system if their if their information is encoded into the land itself so that is truly awful cultures are egalitarian now egalitarian is in terms of material stuff they share everything and nobody's mm-hmm. wealthier than the other no culture is egalitarian when it comes to knowledge and that's really important and mm. my doctoral thesis was called when knowledge was power because controlling the knowledge was the source of information and we'll get to restrict it again because that's all relevant to that so if you take the australian story they tried to share with the invaders, the British invaders. Fences were put up and they tried to walk their song lines and as soon as they crossed a fence, because they weren't used to land being fenced off, they were shot. Hmm. They took a, a sheep or cow or something, they were shot. But in Aboriginal culture that should have been shared, you know. So the cultural clashes, it's just the most horrible history and it, it's repeated all around the world the way Indigenous cultures were treated. Mm. Um, And they were removed from their knowledge and tried to be converted to um, the religions of the invaders. Yeah. I I I mean, Freud refers to the Australian Aboriginal as the most miserable of savages with no morals or anything. The stories all, so the knowledge is integrated. So a story about an animal will also have ethical stories and information about the place. They had lots of moral and ethical stuff. It wasn't recognized. Um, yeah, history's pretty horrible stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that's that is that is really really awful. And you did say that you you wanted to dive into restricted knowledge, yes, and absolutely. and also what you just said about uh, knowledge being power. Uh, so yeah, dive dive more into that. Yeah, it's really important. So once that knowledge is laid down those songs mm-hmm. that are taught to kids. And so often we hear the stories of Indigenous cultures and they sound like children's stories. It's, the reason is they are children's stories. You only get the next level once you've been initiated to the first level and then you get initiated higher and higher and information is kept secret. In Australia it's called secret business, but every culture does this. And the reason is the, um, I think in America you call it the telephone game where you whisper mm, mm-hmm. yep. and within. Yeah. So we just did for a, an Australian TV show, which will be on in two weeks, I did an experiment with an Aboriginal guy and a group of people 
And he told a short story to the first person in the thing. You can predict what's going to happen from the telephone game. <laughs> um, and the story had about four sentences in it and a couple of animals and a couple of plants. So he tells the story around the group it goes, and within five minutes it's completely corrupted. Uh, <laughs> the kookaburra survived and a monkey appeared that had never been in the original one. So the <laughs> producer says to us, oh, we've got to do it again. And by that stage I'd done my spiel about um, the longevity of how this information is kept accurate for tens of thousands of years. We have stories we know in Australia that have been scientifically verified dating back 17,000 years. Now, wow. Stonehenge that we're going to get to is 5,000 years old. So this is three times as long as Stonehenge and their information about volcanoes, about landscape changes that have been verified and uh, forests that have changed types. Uh, okay, so how do they do that when information is corrupted so quickly? So that producer said to us, you've got to do it again. I'd done my spiel about 17,000 years and um, Rob, the host, had told them the story. So off we go again, thinking this is stupid. Around it goes, the kookaburra survived and a pineapple appeared in it. <laughs> the second time through, it didn't work. So if information can be corrupted in five minutes, how are they doing 17,000 years? They're yeah. doing it by restricting information. So the information is repeated. It's kept between a group of elders, not a single one, because they don't allow a single person to have total power because anything happens to them, you just lost everything. Yeah. But who keep confirming against each other at a very highly restricted level. Only those yeah. who have earned the right, and it's usually a minimum of about 20 years before you get to that high level, repeating the information and singing the songs and travelling the song lines or in America the uh, pilgrimage trails. The Inca we have we know from them, C-E-Q-U-E-S, no one knows how to pronounce it, Secas, um, that was documented by the Spanish invaders before they wiped out all their stuff. So we know this happens all over the world. So that combination of associating with the place, singing it, knowing it, all the practical information and keeping the important stuff restricted ensures this information is held very accurately it is extraordinarily brilliant wow that is incredible 17,000 years and it it's almost necessary for them to be able to do that because if you mistake where the watering hole is from you die you die <laughs> so yeah, basically yeah. those who did it well survived and others lots of them didn't there's a story yeah. from the, um, it's one of, I think it's the Hopi, one of the Pueblo where the kids decided this was a bit ridiculous and went off and set up a new village, had a bad year and uh, had to come back home to mum and dad to get some <laughs> uh, So to, to give you the, what the story is, because how did we scientifically verify this? There's a story that dates back to the end of the Ice Age in Victoria, Melbourne, which is my nearest big city, is on Port Phillip Bay and Tasmania, the little island off the bottom of Australia, uh, the Aboriginal people recorded in one of the um, big court thingos the direction the Yarra River, the river that feeds into that bay, 
took all the way across to Tasmania. That had been flooded at the end of the Ice Age over 10,000 years ago. But eventually, a lot later, divers went down and the course of the river was exactly as they'd said. There are volcanoes in Queensland where the stories of where, you know what it was like, this volcano, and that they actually differentiate between different sorts of volcanoes. But people said, well, Maybe they can tell from the surface, even if there's not much there, except there are no stories from the volcanoes that predate 65,000 years ago. And the Aboriginal Mm. people in Australia have been here 65,000 years. Now, if they were doing it from the surface, there would be stories, but the stories appear. They describe exactly how Henshinbrook Island, for example, was formed um, and the changes in other uh, forest types that have since been verified and these have been recorded before the scientists took the story. So scientists are now taking the stories. It's a guy called Dwayne Hamaker that's taking the astronomy stories and finding that they match exactly what happened as long as you date them back and move the stars accordingly. Mm. Um, So it's not feeble interpretation. This is really robust stuff. Yeah, like there is clear evidence that they Absolutely. have been memorizing for that long. And wow. the culture here is continuous. So that the, you can tell that from the artwork. It changes, but it's continuous dating back. Well, the artworks are over 30,000 years continuous. Yeah. But there's other evidence that they've been here probably over 60,000. Yeah. That's a long time. It is. It's a very long time. So, so knowledge truly was power. Because, and, and that was why they did not allow one single elder to have all of the knowledge because that would be putting too much power in one person's hands. Yeah. So I, the another, Pueblo, yeah. The Pueblo chiefs mm-hmm. change yeah. some of the winter. And at the moment, I'm working a lot with David Kanosh, who's an elder and storyteller for the Klingit, T L I N G I T, of Southeast. Alaska. The same methods work everywhere. We haven't got to portable devices yet. We'll get there. But he's talking about how he was taught uh, by his grandparents the stories associated with the um, cairns on the mountain. Um, And that links to flooding. And again, we're dating back 10, 11,000 years. Mm -hmm. So you've got this sort of thing happening the main researcher in this field, Patrick Nunn, N-U-N-N, is finding these stories from Indigenous cultures all around the world, coastline changes and volcanoes and stuff. Yeah. So it's human. They, these guys weren't all talking to each other and working it out. It's mm-hmm. the way the human brain functions, and it's something we are not taking advantage of, mm-hmm. even though we are encoded exactly the same. The human brain hasn't evolved that much in that much time. We've got all those abilities, (laughs) potentials, and we don't do them, don't use them. Yeah, which I I would love to explore later on, like why we don't use them at all. But you did uh, have another very interesting piece of research that we haven't dived into related to these Aboriginal cultures. And that is uh, two things, which is one, they had these, uh, they not only used the, the land itself as a location for their memory palaces, but they also created monuments and used portable physical devices as well to help them 
use the the method of loci. So I was interested in first diving into what were these monuments that some of these cultures were creating and how did they help them facilitate uh, memory formation? Right. Um, That's a big one because then we'll get to why archaeologists should be looking for these things in the the monuments like Stonehenge and that. So uh, main one is cave art and artwork. And Mm. so we know from our cultures here and um, those few cultures that have managed to keep their cultures intact, that that artwork is not pretty pictures. It's um, mnemonics for memory, for memory, for knowledge. So you can actually see in some of our artwork, Australian Aboriginal artwork up north, because uh, some of it goes on top of each other because they keep touching it up because it, to them it's just a knowledge source and they'll um, edit their knowledge. So there, there'll be things like um, ships from the Macassans before uh, Europeans came here, Macassans from Indonesia would come across for fishing. So their ships started to appear in it and then the European horses started appearing and guns and things overlapping so they are recording what they're seeing in some areas in northern territory right up north the reason most of our good stuff information for this is right up north is that europeans settled the south you know sydney melbourne uh where it was more temperate uh up there you've got the art changing from being inland artworks of inland plants and animals to gradually changing to water ones as the sea uh, marine, as the sea levels rose. So you've got an actual history in the artwork of their knowledge. So you've got to look at Indigenous art as knowledge systems. So David Kanosh, the Klingard elder, though they do the most incredible artwork and the totem poles. So we'll get to poles and other things. There's videos of him doing storytelling on on YouTube, and every now and then he turns around and looks at the picture behind him. He's actually used that as a mnemonic device, and so he's looking and he's told all of this. I'm quoting in my next book because he's teaching me so much uh, that he was trying to decide. He only had an hour which of the stories he'd encoded to the artwork uh, he was going to tell, but he says the anthropologists until me had never asked him how he remembered it. They'd listened yeah. to the stories, yeah, but they just assumed he sort of just knew them. But, <laughs> but they used devices. So he's using the cans, he's using the artwork. So artwork anywhere, and a lot of that is abstract. So when you get images of caves like Lascaux and Altamira and so on, you get the fantastic paintings of the horses and buffalo, uh, bison and all that. But there's actually a whole lot of abstract marks around it and they're rarely mentioned. They certainly don't show up in the pictures as much because they're not as pretty. Uh, But abstract art is far more useful because you can encode more and more complexity to it than you can to um, something that represents, if it's a horse, you're thinking about horses. So a lot of devices... Um, include will just have what appear to be abstract marks on them. But once you look at them carefully, there is a pattern to it. And as soon as there is any pattern at all, the human brain will make something of it. Mm. So I've started using these sorts of devices and 
cannot believe. So let's take the African Lukasa, my favourite. Yeah. The, um, the Luba people of West Africa have a take a, a board and glue beads on and do a bit of carving on it. And so what I read is that this acts like a miniature memory palace and they can encode an entire history of the Luba people and all their ceremonial stuff and everything to this. Well, I'm a sceptic and I'm in the real world. <laughs> there is no way you could do that much information to a board you can hand in your So I go out, they're building a new veranda out the back where I'm pointing. It's good that I pointed everything, isn't it? <laughs> and um, I grabbed a bit of wood, glued on some beads, no pattern or anything, and thought, okay, what are you going to try? Because it's not going to work, is it? So I tried, decided to do the a field guide to Victoria's birds because I'm married to a fanatical birder. <laughs> and so uh, there's 412 species. So I started with the bead at the top and started encoding them. So that's Dromaeidae, which is the emu. So I went Dromaeidae, drum, okay, they're all a day, the families, drum, okay, we'll have a drum roll to start. Right. I encoded all 82 families and then used stories to add to each one until I had the whole 412 birds in. And I still can't believe how well it works and I don't need to be have it with me. So when I was with a group of birders last week and they couldn't remember all the birds they'd seen, I could reel off every single one for them to say, no, no, yeah, yeah, that's the one we forgot. <laughs> uh, and then you encode more and more about it. You know, the sanderlings do a little dance because they're a little bird that dances up and down the beach with the waves. So put a little dance in and I sing it in the shower. And So this board with beads on it that looks like just a board with beads glued on because that's what it is, works as a field guide and it works extraordinarily well. Yeah. Wow. And that it sounds like the the portable device itself facilitates your memory of it to the point where you don't even need yeah. the board when you're when you're using it. That is incredible. But I can still feel because you touch it all. There's photos yeah. of them doing that. Then we've got the same thing being done. I had an Aboriginal elder come. I, I've been doing workshops on uh, making Lucasa at university and an Aboriginal elder came and I said, this is the same as Chiringa, which is an Aboriginal device, but it's highly restricted and still used. So mm-hmm. um, it would be culturally unethical. I have paid for um, and got permission from Luba people to do this. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, it works exactly the same. In that case, it's carvings. It doesn't matter as long as it's something that's patent. And he was astounded how the brain was exactly the same for this Aboriginal device and an African device uh, because it's the human brain that's the common factor. Yeah, that that's one of the themes that I'm getting from what you're saying is all of these Aboriginal cultures, not all of them like interacted with each other, but they all developed the as a foundation for all their memory techniques, the method of loci yep. as the the way that they memorize stuff. To I, I'm really interested in that Lucasa example that you just gave. So I was hoping you could give like the first five species or, or birds and then maybe describe like the story that you have to memorize those and, and how you went about doing so. Okay. Um 
So the first five families, I've got the 82 families around the board and for your sake I won't sing it, but I, yeah. <laughs> I do sing them Dromea Day and at a day. And so Dromea Day is the emu. That's only got one bird in the, the family. The next is Anatidae and that's the ducks and there's 16 of them. And we start with the magpie goose and one of our foot. So this is the story about uh, football. So one of our football teams, the magpies, and a little bit on further I've got swan. So swan's another football team. So the story is the magpies against the swans and the, the story that birds are all in taxonomic order right through because that helps me with them. So the magpies are playing the swans. Uh, there's two teals called the chestnut and the grey teal. They're the tea ladies that come out at half time. A fight breaks out so we've got the hard head and the blue wing duck and the the blue bill duck and the blue winged um and anyway those ones getting all bashed up the musk duck is got all his perfume on over in the bushes this is all at the moment my head is actually seeing an area that I've associated this with as well so that story you don't want the whole 16 but that story gives me the 16 ducks mm-hmm. um then Say so further on, there's, or did you want, then I go Megapodidae, Fasianidae. That's, they're not birds you're going to know. Oh, Fasianidae includes the peacock because we've got them. Hey, I do I've added, peacock. <laughs> I've, I've added the uh, introduced ones as well because it's not much point not knowing the introduced yeah. ones because you won't recognise them. But so further on, your brain will do something. So I then get to a little bead. I'm pointing to it in, on my imaginary Lucasa, which is <laughs> but it's there on my imaginary Lucasa. And down the side, I'm very bad at craft. There's glue sort of dribbling down, and it's just a little bead. And that was for Menuridae, which is the lyrebird, our glorious mimic. But so my brain said, a man has urinated down the side of my little Lucasa because anything vulgar is going to be memorable. And not only did he urinate on my Lacasa, which gives me menuridae, he lied about it. Oh. It gives me the lie about it. So yeah. your, every single bead and story, my brain will do something like that. It's yeah. amazing. If you relax, I'm much quicker at it now. At first it was difficult because I was trying to be terribly, terribly sensible and, of course, being terribly pure and moral. There was no vulgar or violence. Now there's vulgarity and violence everywhere because that's memorable. Yeah. And one of the things that you you harbored on, which I think was so surprising to me when you get into using these memory techniques is you come in kind of like a skeptic. You're like, there's no way. Yeah. There's no way they work this well. And then you you start to use it and you're like, oh my God. And like for for me in particular, in high school, I used to have a Horrible memory. Terrible. I, I remember there was one day where we were studying for the AP history exam. And I walked up to the room where the test was being taken. And my friend was outside, uh, Ben. And I said, how many times did you uh, read the textbook? I read it three times. And he was like, I read it four times. Mm-hmm. We actually thought that was a good way to study. Yeah, and no. I, I forgot everything from that mm. test, like just a day afterward. But then I came to college and I learned about your memory tech, the, the method of loci from reading your book, as well as Anthony Metvier's The Victorious Mind. 
and a whole bunch of other like podcasts and books on memory. And the first like project that I applied these techniques to was memorizing stories for impromptu speech and debate, which is an event that requires you to memorize a lot of stories that you can say off the cuff for your impromptu speeches. And like, I was astounded by how well it worked because I memorized uh, 50 plus stories that are all like six sentences to 10 sentences long inside of my house, which I'm in right now with my parents. And just the act of like repeatedly going through every now and then, I've gotten to the point where I only need to do it uh, once a year at this point, but I still go through more often because it's fun. <laughs> and that's and, the big yeah. thing because it's fun. It's so fun. It's so fun. Yeah. So I well, wanted to die. Yeah. You're yeah gonna... and, um, I have a granddaughter, Leah, who is 17, mm-hmm. 16, 17, just turned 17. And she did this when she was seven, 10 years ago. She put in the first 15 countries in the world and then when um, Memory Code was launched, which is before Memory Craft, she got up on stage and showed off that she could reel them off. (laughs) She has not done it since. We were at lunch last um, Sunday and her new boyfriend was asking me about memory methods and I said, go on, Leah, and off she went and reeled them off. And she has not thought about them. She shocked herself for 10 years and she still, she missed one out of <laughs> it, it is astounding. And you've got to be very careful not to put things in the wrong place. So when I did the countries in the world, I put Samoa in the fruit shop and then realised it shouldn't have been in the fruit shop, it should have been in the butcher. I had it in the wrong order. So I, for a year, I had to have Sam walking out of that fruit shop and down and back into his butcher shop yeah. to get um that correct because my brain was not going to stop with you know sam was in the fruit shop that's what i taught it (laughs) that they are incredibly effective methods yeah so i mentioned before that at school my big problem was languages i'd never passed any of them Mm -hmm. i decided okay let's see if i can use these methods combination of all of them and took on french and not only could i manage it I decided then, okay, let's make it even harder. Let's take on Chinese. And I have now developed a method for Chinese and I am learning Chinese and managing it, something I would not have considered possible without using memory palaces and songs and stories and all sorts of other things. And I've created a bestiary for it, uh, which is going to into medieval stuff, which we should get to at some stage, but yeah. we haven't finished monuments yet. So that is just incredible. And I like your daughter's story really resonates because that truly is the the power of the techniques. It's it's a lot of upfront effort when you're first ingraining things, but yeah. then it truly lasts forever if you yeah. can get to a point where you've you've practiced them for a bit. Um I did I did want to dive a bit more into like uh, we've gone into Aboriginal history, the monuments, the me- portable memory devices, song lines, and I thought it would be fun to keep going through history until we get to the present day and talk about like why these memory techniques have disappeared. So maybe we could dive into 
ancient Greece and then move on to the medieval period. How did these memory techniques change with the invention of writing? And and yeah, how did they change with the invention of writing? This is, yeah. um, I'm working on this a lot for a new book. Uh, the one culture in the world, which is partly why I want to learn Chinese, the one culture in the world that you can trace right from the very early pictographs and scratchings and things, right through to a script that's used today and a language that's spoken today is Chinese. It's the only one because the other two independently developed uh, the Phoenicians, which end up Egyptians and hieroglyphs, and the Maya, and they're not using them still, those scripts today. So the Chinese did it continuously and you can see the changes, but it's probably easier for us to go through to the medieval and so when you read the stories of ancient Greece and Rome, you get all the vulgar and, you know, lively yeah. stories, and they leave out the other stuff. If you start to read the more detailed accounts, you'll find they refer to the different mountains around Rome and that you can see that they were actually using memory palaces. And even though, you know, the Greek and Roman orators did use memory palaces. Those ancient stories uh, and Homer and the Iliad and that move through location after location. So there's a lot of evidence in those stories that they were using memory palaces. And as writing came, the dependence on memory palaces and um, the actual landscape became much less. Also, um, it happened too with specialisation, with farming, because once you get a large community, you've no longer got the elders in, in control with controlling all the knowledge. You start to get specialists. So if you look at the British Neolithic, which is the one I've looked at in a lot of detail, um, so with Stonehenge, we can go into more detail about it later, but they were separate, uh, starting to settle. So as they started to settle, the monument, they started creating monuments to reflect the landscape and you'll find all these portable devices and everything a part of the whole thing. But then you start getting the Druids, who are about a 1,000 years after Stonehenge, um, who are recorded as being holding all these poetry and song poetry and the songs or poetry or whatever you want to call it. And um, the Romans recorded they kept all the astronomy and all this other information. So they have moved now to the next layer down because power has now moved to violence and wealth and, mm. frankly, nothing's changed much. Um, so you've then got a knowledge class that are serving the leaders. They're still very powerful. Then what I believe happened, and I'm not the only one that suggested this, is they start claiming a link to gods. So all the characters, you'll never hear an Indigenous culture talk about gods and we worship gods and that. That only comes about with literacy. So both the Native American and um, Australian First Nations people always say to me, the stories we tell and the, the old people and the ancestors and what, but they don't worship them. But this layer that become the priests start to claim um a connection, a spiritual connection that they have and that everybody else doesn't, which is a way power is is the greatest aphrodisiac. It's the greatest thing people want. And so then you get this, this priestly class. So then you get into the medieval where the method of loci is still taught. It was written as a, a textbook, the Ad Herenium, um, 
which just means two herenium. So the author's anonymous. You don't, we don't know who wrote it. We just know who he dedicated it to, which is a bit sad. Uh, but it's taught right through schools. But if you start looking at medieval manuscripts, there's a lot of value for students now because what they did to make them memorable was we have just had an electrical storm start. This could be interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm not plugged in, so it should be all right. Uh, so what they did was they made each page memorable. So the way to not study is to type your notes with every page looking the same. They would make all the capital letters flashy. They draw funny little often vulgar drawings around them. They'd leave wide margins and scribble in them, add commentary as they went. They did a lot of things to make those pages memorable. Then you gradually uh, get even that left out. And part of the work I'm doing at the moment is with neurodiversities of all sorts of types as well. And you end up with education narrower and narrower and narrower to one sort. It happened that I'm lovely and neurotypical and good at maths, so school was fine for me. Uh, People who think differently, which were essential for evolution, um, which um, is the whole theme of my new book, so let's not go there too much. Um, So education became narrower and narrower, and we tried to make everyone the same. Mm. Um, Music and art became peripheral, whereas in Indigenous cultures, music and art are in the heart of the culture. Uh, Everything's sung, everything's performed, um, and art is a way of representing memory and knowledge, became pretty. Pretty Mm. was more important than the knowledge base. So one of the Aboriginal women I work with, I asked her what percentage of Aboriginal art is for aesthetics and what percentage for knowledge. She said it's all for knowledge. If it's aesthetic, that's great, but it's primarily knowledge. And um, Dave Knosh, the Klingit eldest, says the same about Klingit art. So they're totem poles. They are stunning carvings. Oh, beautiful. But, and they've just put up new ones in Juneau in Alaska. They're, oh, I've got all involved with the Southeast (laughs) heritage. I am so besotted by everything. It's not just the Klingit, Klingit. Simeon and and Haida. But anyway, those totem poles tell stories. They aren't just pretty. Why in our education system have we made art and music for those that are good at it and can do pretty things and are hobby classes? And if anyone needed to be taken out of class, I taught physics for many years. They never got taught out of taken out of physics. They were always taken out of music or art, um, we've separated it all into nice little silos and we're not taking advantage of the fact that our brain works with music and art. And if you think about um, dementia, people that can be completely unresponsive to almost anything will respond to music and even stand up and sing the words when they haven't said anything and they'll recognise places from their past. Place and music and art and physical things are deep, deep, deep encoded in us. Yeah. And we are not taking advantage of that in education. I really resonate with what you're saying because in college right now, when I sit around in my lecture classes and I see how other people are taking notes, 80% of students have a Google Drive page open 
and are typing their notes exactly verbatim of what the professor is saying. So note-taking is completely lacking all of the things that made it so memorable in the medieval era, like the color, the beasts uh, that were added in, um, the uh, song and the art that was incorporated into it. And it sounds like from what you're saying, we shouldn't see these ver- uh, the STEM, the humanities and like art as all completely separate because they are integrally related. And there's a quote that I, uh, I really like. I can't remember who the, the author was, but it, it goes, um, there are no rigid disciplines in the universe, only concepts. And the idea for me from that is like, yes, you, you have these disciplines that do have concepts that are highly connected, but that doesn't stop you from connecting one concept to another concept in a different discipline. And I think like if more students had the notion that you could combine math with art by like creating metaphors out of math concepts and imagining them as like these really just vivid, vulgar, (laughs) because unfortunately that is memorable, uh, add music into it, add, put it in a memory palace. Like it is such a, a more fun, more engaging and also more effective way to to learn so i i wanted to dive yeah look at your lecturers and look Mm -hmm. at the jobs in your university i'm an honorary research fellow or adjunct research whatever i'm not paid by the university even though i've got a research position there because i don't fit anywhere because i cannot get a job in a university because every job will be advertised as a particular department and my Mm. work is so interdisciplinary. Now, because I'm old, that's fine by me and I'm starting. I came up with something the other day uh, that I actually don't belong anywhere but I belong everywhere and I think that's something that Indigenous cultures recognise with elders. Us old people have had a bash at a good few things and... Contemporary society is really into the young and into specialisation. I'm Mm. not opposed to young or specialisation. I am um, saying that we lot don't write us off just because, well, I'm over 70. I don't want to be written off by my age or because I've gone in so many directions, I don't actually fit in one of those nice, neat silos anymore. Mm. Yeah. Like if you come into a university, you know, you get labeled like philosophy professor or psychology professor, and your work is just so interrelated that it's it's hard to just say like anthropology, like there's so much more to it than that. Yeah, um, I don't fit anywhere. Yeah. I wanted to I dive. I done a bit of lecturing in creative writing because I am a science mm. writer. <laughs> but um, no, the universities will say they're all in favor of interdisciplinary studies. They just don't mm-hmm. create any positions that are truly interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary, yeah. Because budgets have to go by departments and, yeah, I education. To... I don't want to throw out what we've got. I think we can uh-huh. add this. We are adding it in some schools here in our VCE, our final year psychology course, has just added in uh, memory palaces and song lines into the final Ooh. year VCE psychology. 
for yeah. the first time. I've done all the training videos for the teachers and so on. So it's come in um, and we have started doing it in some schools. The kids absolutely go berserk. We use artwork for maths tables. So, you know, <laughs> tables. Um, so if you get them to make up stories, so six eights are 48. So, so I've got a character, Rascali, um, and six is sticks, eight is always, six is always sticks, eight is always a gate, 40 is always naughty, so 48 is a naughty gate. So yeah. the kids make up, because that's a, a one of the tables they have trouble with. So they've got a story where um, Rapscali or their own um, Rapscali, and I'll get to the Rapscallians in a moment in education, uh, where he picks up some sticks, he goes and sits by the gate and the gate goes whack and whacks him flying and his sticks go everywhere and drawing a picture of that, although the students all came up with different stories, of course, um, by actually creating that image, six and eight and eight and sixes all work both ways, they just have to go, oh, sticks and a gate, what was the story? They've got 48. After a few times, of course, they don't need their story anymore. But reeling off, you know, once one is one, two, two is a two, no, two twos are four actually, whatever, you know, it's saying your table. When you're dealing with tables, you do not want them in sequence. So most students will now either use a calculator or count their way up, whereas in senior physics, I want them six, eight, I want them to go 48. Art works. So so you test the class before, you find out which tables they're having trouble with, each student, Mm -hmm. and they do an artwork and a story for those tables only. It just works. And we've got a couple of schools that are doing that all the time now. That is awesome that some schools are adopting it into the curriculum because I study psychology myself and I have heard a zilch about memory palaces or method of loci or anything of that sort. Every year we've got 18,000 students doing it in our final year this year in Victoria. Every last one will know all about it. And then Melbourne University is introducing it into all first year. That's incredible. So it is starting yeah. uh, and it it takes it doesn't cost a thing. One thing with the schools, corridors are not used during class time. They are perfect memory palaces. So are the school grounds. The memory palaces are all sitting there waiting. It will not cost a cent to use them. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most beautiful things about it as well is it's not like uh, – it's not like you're you're asking students to make some incredible monetary investment or to no. it, it's literally just like it's in your head. <laughs> it's it's and it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm now working with neurodiversities and dyslexia doesn't basically doesn't exist without writing. It's a problem with writing, and the research shows that dyslexics are very strong spatially so in one school we set up a memory palace I didn't know that research at the time one girl her self-esteem was incredibly low she she was convinced she was dumb we set up a memory palace and she flew you wouldn't believe how well she used it because um dyslexia is uh, there is a natural high ability 3d and Dyslexics I've worked with can rotate things in their head, stuff I couldn't possibly do. Mm. So what happens now is if you put the some of the information into a memory palace first, when they get to reading, they know what words they're looking for. They've got a lot more clues 
to what comes out. Her self-esteem's just shone just oh. by using a memory palace as a starting point. Yeah, that's um, that's awesome. And yeah. and it, it what it one thing it reminded me of is how memory the the method of loci truly can be used by pretty much anyone because there is even a subset of people who I can't remember what it's called. You'll know what it is, but they can't visualize things in their head. That's a fantasia yeah. and I have yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's, and, and, and so does Anthony Metvier. <laughs> yeah, it's not in any of my books because I didn't know about it. Um, I didn't realize I had it. Yeah, but you can still use yeah. the method of low The research which... says that we can't, and so when they discovered that I had a fantasia and was using memory palaces, I got interviewed, and... I use it slightly differently. I use stories a lot more. Mm-hmm. So um, a memory palace, so a shop that other people would see the shop, I take one aspect of it. Um, so one palace that I use for image competition goes grog shop, pillar post, rain. So I've just taken one aspect of it and then I use that as my hook. I didn't realise I was doing it, but I'm still using the memory palace. I'm just using it less using the visual and more using stories, but I'm still using it and it still mm. works at treat. So, yes, I have no, for people who don't know about aphantasia, uh, most people, uh, if they imagine their parents' faces can actually see them, I can't. I close my eyes, I see nothing. It's just grey marsh. I can't visualise my parents' faces. I can't visualise anything. So then with this new work on why would evolution have left this in? It's about 4% of the population, constant, all over the world. So there's something genetic doing it. They haven't Mm -hmm. researched yet. What earthly advantage could there be to no visual memory um, that evolution didn't wipe it out? And the answer is that we can't get post-traumatic stress because Mm. we can't relive past events. So my father's death that was very traumatic at the time, I weep, wailed and carried on, and now I can't recall it at all, whereas my mother, until she died, never really got over it. So if you think in terms of evolution of small bands of people moving out of Africa and whatever, something traumatic happens, someone like me in the group that goes, oh, horrible, right, let's get on with it, it's very useful. (laughs) But yeah. you don't want me by it myself. I need the people with much better memories and with yeah. historic memories. So probably a lot of my troubles at school were that I have no visual memory. Because mm. if, if everyone had aphantasia, then you wouldn't be able to as, as effectively transmit like all the knowledge systems. Um, That's right. In, in so the you get a combination. So if you look at yeah. autism, um, autistic people will often get very fixated on particular information. They don't like change. They want it repeated over and over. So take Tavish, the the boy that I'm talking about in the book, is the best birder, is 12, is the best birder around. My husband's one of the very well-known birders. Tavish, they'll consult together. Tavish's only been birding for 18 months. On bird calls, all the birders just default uh, to Tavish because he knows his bird calls better than anyone. Mm -hmm. But he has all the other problems associated with autism. Then you've got ADHD. So these people are not repeating stuff. They're taking in everything, you know, all over the place. Now think about the way an Aboriginal culture works. I've been working with Margot Neal, my co-author, right, she's Aboriginal co-author on songlines on this. 
So what you've got in that band are people that are repeating the information over and over and don't want things changed, which is how you're getting information held very reliably. You've got the ADHD people who are the performers. These are performance-based knowledge system. Everything is performed. They are adding new stuff, so it's keeping it fresh. And they're taking in new stuff. Any of the new stuff they take in that's really valuable is staying, hanging around and ending up in the system that's being repeated and repeated. You've got a few people like me that can cope with traumas. You've got, so if you start looking at all the different neurodiversities that have been permanently added in um, and kept going with with um, evolution in a group sense because evolution works for a population, not for individuals, um, then uh, everything's great. You need all those diversities. So yeah. what do we do in schools? We say we'll have this type of learning. <laughs> Autism is a disorder. ADHD is a disorder. Um, yeah. They do have problems and they do have to live in the real world. Um, Let's not pretend all is dreamy, mm-hmm. but it's not quite as simple as let's try and make everyone the same. We no. cannot solve the world's problems with the sort of thinking, as Einstein said, the sort of thinking that created them. But how yeah. many of your politicians are neurodiverse, are artists, are musicians, are um, in the creative fields? How many are even scientists? I know are now... Parliament at 68% are from business and law. Mm-hmm. And then some of the others yeah. are um, career politicians. We've got one sort of thinking. Yeah, I, I really resonate with what you're saying. It's like this: the modern school system, not saying all schools are like this, but people are told to sit in seats when they're in the most like energetic times of their lives yeah. and learn all in the same way. And, and I, I did, as a teacher, yeah, I did allow my more active kids to walk up and down up the back as long as they didn't <laughs> disturb the kids who like being quiet up the front. But I certainly didn't think this way. I never used memory palaces or anything. Yeah. Um, well, I think one thing that we could dive into to maybe – try and help students realize and also teachers the incredible power of these memory techniques inside of education is to talk a little bit more about why we should care about cultivating a great memory in the digital age. And, And one of the reasons I say that is I personally, uh, being in this niche field, uh, called personal knowledge management, Um, It's the art of capturing information and then cultivating it over time to create things out of. Uh, So I have a note-taking system, which I use to help me do that. It's called Obsidian. But I also use like memory techniques alongside that to have like a foundation of knowledge alongside my notes that can help me create things. So the point I'm trying to make is in the digital age, we have more methods than ever before to offload the need to remember things. Like we have Google to search up things in five seconds if we need the answer to a quick problem. We have note-taking systems that are digital. We can type notes much faster than we can write. And we also have like photographs that we can take, like Mm -hmm. uh, just video, vast, vast amounts of ways to offload the need to remember things. So why do you think that 
students and teachers and anyone, honestly, should care about cultivating a great memory inside of the digital age. For the simple reason that everything you've said is focusing yourself on knowledge that already exists. So for Google, you can ask the question and find the answer, but that's the answer mm-hmm. somebody else has found. Uh, and taking notes is fine. But how come I managed to see this link between Indigenous knowledges, Stonehenge and the way monuments have been put together uh, is because I was seeing things from different places. If you can start seeing patterns and ask questions rather than looking up. So let's take a simple um, example of the top 10, or we'll just do eight, countries in the world by population. And if you do that, you'll go China, India, they may soon swap, USA, Indonesia. At the moment, I'm going around my memory palace. Um, Indonesia, uh, Brazil, Pakistan, they just swapped. Uh, Nigeria, the first in Africa. And then we get Bangladesh. I haven't mentioned Russia, Germany, any of the other big ones. And I've said Bangladesh. A lot of people have never even heard of Bangladesh. So the question becomes... How come Bangladesh yeah. is number eight? We've never, why haven't they invaded anyone? Why haven't they got? <laughs> so you start asking questions and that's what happens whenever you start putting memory stuff together. I've got a complete walk that does all of history. Yeah, you know, I can stand there and think, well, this is going to happen at the same time as I've got, um, well, let's take one point, I've got King John on the throne in England, I've got, um, I'm just going across the road, what have I got? I've got um, Chaco Canyon and so on in New Mexico. Yeah, you've got all these things happening at once. But so did they in England with King John and that's when you've got um, Robin Hood and that, what did they know? And the Aztecs and the Inca and the Maya, the three big um, South American cultures. The Maya start where I'm pointing and go right round the block. The Aztec and the Inca are in two short bits. They're only around for a couple of hundred years. Um, the Maya and the Aztec were literate. The Inca weren't, but they used these incredible memory systems and had this massive empire. So by putting these things together, you see patterns and ask questions mm. that you would not have asked. If we want creative thinkers They've got to be able to draw on these things, not just ask questions and go to Google and get the answer. Mm, mm. Oh, I love that. So one of the big reasons that cultivating a great memory is so important in the digital age is it fosters creativity, which I think is so important to hone down on because a lot of the students I know see memory as synonymous with rote learning and like they hear memorization and they're like oh god i hate memorization that's horrible but in fact it it, if like rote rote memorization can be a problem if if you're just looking at words and then just trying to like ingrain them in your head just by that but the act of of memorizing things and having a foundation of something like history for you or the uh, population countries, uh, countries ordered by population, it gives you this foundation 
sticky web off of which to attach new information to, which it sounds like really just grows your curiosity for things. Because now if you hear, if you hear something about uh, Bangladesh on the news uh, beforehand, there would have been nothing that would have like made you interested in learning mm. more. But now, cause it's already in a memory palace, you can think, Oh, maybe I'll attach that to that memory palace and, and I'll, I'll create it connected. To, you don't even have to think it. It's have, the moment you say Bangladesh, my play, my memory <laughs> images go to straight place. It things attach without you even realizing it. It starts <laughs> to happen, happen really naturally. Now our brains are pattern seeking devices. If you don't give them information to seek patterns on, how are they going to? And creativity, too many people think it's painting pictures, writing poetry and so on. Business needs creativity. Psychologists need creativity. Scientists need creativity. We will not get new solutions without creative thinking and need the patterns of information to suddenly realise wow, that thing I haven't thought about for 20 years is actually relevant. Mm, yeah. That, and that's one of the the things that I think really needs to be honed in about like creativity is it's just connecting things, exactly. like disparate things. And that is exactly what you you can do when you use these these memory techniques is you start to become interested in connecting disparate ideas together. Um. For, for listeners listening to that, that might be inspired to try and start their own memory practice, what do you think are some practical exercises or starting points that they could dive into to explore these, this, these memory techniques we've been discussing? Well, the first thing I'd say is don't bother with phone numbers and shopping lists because we can write them down. Um, I would take whatever you are particularly interested in and start with a memory palace. So if you happen to be into football, you have football that's different to ours, but if you want to um, do something with all the teams, then shove each of the teams into a position in the memory palace and then start adding information to it. So set up a memory palace for whatever you're interested in and start in your home. You start at one door and I put 10 in a room. I wouldn't advise that now. I'd advise five. You start at the door and you put find five locations as you walk around the room, then go to the next room, do another five and place, um, You get it in order. Don't get things in an order that's alphabetic because you already know the alphabet. If I could do the countries of the world alphabetically, that doesn't tell me anything. I wouldn't get Bangladesh with eighth in the population. I'd get it starting with a B. Well, I already knew that. So start with some kind of order, like with the birds I do taxonomic order, and um, that will start you. And once you start experiencing it, then you'll start to understand what's possible and then you just do Mm. it more and more. So initially setting up the first memory palace and getting your brain to relax and let it make stupid things like menure a day for life. It takes a while before you'll relax and do that. But once you're used to it, it just happens all the time. Yeah. And it's it's honestly beautiful when you first start experiencing it because- Like we were saying before, you don't, you, you're a little bit uh, like there's, you're, you're thinking there's no way. 
there, there's no way it works as well. And then you you go through a memory palace for the first time and you, like for me, can memorize 50 impromptu stories and only miss one of them when you practice like for the third time. And you're just like, oh my God, like this is incredible. Yeah. And I think one of the the things that's also beautiful about the memory techniques is you it almost becomes a form of meditation mm-hmm. because you are cultivating your ability to focus attention yep. on this one thing and it becomes like a flow activity i don't know if you've heard of flow theory yes, with me how yeah it's it's truly like wonderful to to experience and it's it's also paradoxical because you'd think that to come up with all of these images and other things if uh that you need to like create uh associations with you would need to be very controlling of your mind like consciously think about what you want to do but as you do it more and more as you ingrain um you you build your memory palace network you actually start to give up control and yep. the associations come to mind almost instantaneously uh it's beautiful you just get better and better at People it over time me, but you're remem- having to memorize more than just the information you want which is true in a way except that it's so much more efficient that it doesn't it it works so for my chinese um, and the the way the syllables work it doesn't matter. I use a bestiary. I use let the first letters relate each one's an animal um, or a character of some kind. So P is a panther, and those characters become friends. I use them so often, especially my CH, my little chimpanzee. He's fantastic. So when <laughs> I want a word that has CH as the first bit, that's called an initial in Chinese, my chimpanzee will be there immediately and then the rest of it's an action. So it's a person action type thing. So the rest, and so he'll do that action. Like if it was C-H-U, U is a stabbing action from a unicorn, stabbing everyone. Um, as soon as I want that, my chimpanzee will be there stabbing things away and laughing <laughs> and carrying on. He is a real character to me. Um, so it took a while for those, what is it, about twenty. 728 initials in pinyin in Chinese, but now each one of them is a character that is so alive and got so much personality that it's so much more fun than just saying choo, choo, choo over again and trying to remember what it means. Um, So it does become fun, but it also becomes much more emotional. I'm emotionally attached to my Lucasa and to my other memory devices I'm very emotionally attached to those characters for Chinese. I've got another whole lot for French. I've got another whole lot for names. It sounds like huge amounts, but it just works so much easier. Yeah. You you only get better over time. Hmm. Like you, you build your network of personal associations yep. that come to mind instantaneously. Like one of the things I've been doing recently is I actually downloaded your bestiary uh which for the listeners the the bestiary was a uh a basically like 
whole books were made of beasts inside of the medieval period, especially that could be used as personal associations for um, memory palaces. Yeah, they did it and immorals and things. So immorals and stuff. Yeah, we yeah. didn't do that. So I've been using your encoding the the beast from your bestiary into my dining hall at Cornell. Yeah. <laughs> and now there's now when I create like associations for names or when I'm also planning to use them for just any words yeah, that I don't yet know. That's what I didn't didn't use them enough. Yeah, go on. Uh, I, I have like just in my dining hall, just crazy stuff. Like if I, when my first, the first thing I see when I walk into my dining hall, honestly kind of terrifies me because it is an emu with uh, Sauron's, the one ring from the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> uh, burning in a pit of lava with a effigy next to it on fire. And though there are three things encoded in there, which is the, uh, the effigy itself yeah. that is on fire. The the Sauron's one ring is supposed to be engraving. Um, and the reason that is encoded in the one ring is as if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, uh, when you put it in the Mount Doom uh, lava, uh, the engraving gets shown. It usually oh, wow. is hidden, but it, you can only see it if it's in lava. And then finally, the emu is just an emu. Uh, and it's not having a good time because it's in lava. So, <laughs> My poor yeah. emu. They're nasty poor creatures emu. anyway. Yeah, <laughs> if people want to look them up, it's actually a bestiary. It's B-E-S-T. Mm, mm-hmm. I can't spell and I can't visualise the word bestiary, A-R-Y. It's not B-A-S-T, which it should be. And so... I use them for names. So H.I. is a hippopotamus. So if you meet Hillary, you then have to associate her with a hippopotamus. And I, the trouble when you meet someone is that you don't stop when you've heard their name, you go on with the conversation. So now I say I have to associate you with the hippopotamus, make some kind of joke about it or something, and then I stop and actually listen, and they will tend to tell you something. And that fixes the name. Um, and it just works so well. I Yeah, what I didn't understand when I was doing that is how useful it is for all words. I use it for all words. And now I've created one for French, some of which I use from that one, and um, Chinese. So yeah. I find bestiaries absolutely invaluable. Oh, yeah. And, like, I think another great point that, you just made is how awesome it is to, as a conversation starter. Exactly. <laughs> like, there's nothing like, um, hello, my name's Aiden. I need to associate you with a hippopotamus. Could yeah. you know, like, like, <laughs> it's just like, you know, so you're expecting. Because I can't remember your name. I really want to remember your name, which is a compliment. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it works every time. You just, you just have to make you sure. Have to apologize to, because there is nothing else that starts with YV. So, yeah. Um, which is because they've probably never realised that there's nothing else that starts with YV. Yeah. So, yeah, it's all good fun. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> I love that. You just have to make sure that you don't offend them by saying you are a hippopotamus. Oh, yeah. You've, um, and you've got that, to, that would so you just say, oops, this is embarrassing. You know, this is how the system yeah. works. And so <laughs> I've had groups of people that in a workshop, I always start with that. They do that and they all know each other's names immediately. 
and from then on, and that bonds the group so fast. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of laughter. Oh, I it's just so fun. They're they're so fun to use the the memory techniques. Uh, I had a few wrapping up questions. One of them was, what are three books that have resonated with you most? Which I know is very personal, but um, yeah. yeah. I When you mentioned that in an email, I had to stop and think because there's a huge number of books that have resonated, but I want to know which books have really changed my life. Mm-hmm. And the first mm-hmm. one that actually changed my life was my year 11 physics textbook. I didn't want to do physics. I was made to do physics because... In those days, if you were good at maths, you did physics. Um, And that textbook and realising what it was saying, from then on I was desperately in love with physics. James Gleick's Chaos Chaos and New Science, his book on chaos theory and fractal geometry, uh, is the closest thing to a religious experience I've ever had starting to see the world in terms of chaos and then fractals, the mathematics that describes it, Um, because I started seeing it everywhere. Knowledge is fractal. The more you dive down into knowledge, the more the patterns emerge, and that's where the more you can memorise, the more you've got to see the patterns and the patterns. You know, it's like taking a fractal and, and doing it to higher and higher and higher resolution and that. And the others, Dominic O'Brien's um, memory books. Oh, yeah. Um, They're great. And I met Dominic in England. He helped train me for competition and he's just the most amazing person. And so his books, when I started realising, because I started from the song lines um, and then uh, his books made me start understanding. And that's what the Indigenous people have said to me because I've, I've said, why didn't you explain it? this way you know because clearly you know that and they said well we always knew it but we didn't realize you didn't understand and they said how would you describe your knowledge system I wouldn't know where to start oh god and that's because I glimpsed it from a much more simplified version I glimpsed it from memory palaces and could then build on that so I was only seeing an incredibly simplified and probably still am so those are the three books I'll give you. Those are great, great recommendations. Thank you. Um, and then what? what is the meaning of life for you? <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. <laughs> I have a problem with that question mm-hmm. because there is an assumption there that life has a meaning. Yeah. And I'm not sure that it does. I think it's something that I really appreciate having and being middle-class Australian, massive privilege to have education and comfort and warmth and everything. So I've had a privileged life, which means I feel obligations to give back. Um, But as to whether life has a meaning itself, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a a great answer because, like, I I totally agree with you on that point. I, I don't think there is an inherent meaning that you can give, like, this is it. This is what everyone should be taking away from life. It's just, it's so subjective Mm. and it changes. It changes as well. Uh, Uh, My views have changed so much through this research and through the new research I'm doing. If I ever stop learning, please take me out and shoot me. I don't mean (laughs) that obviously, but um, learning is the 
to be able to learn is the greatest privilege we have. And there are so many people in the world that do not have that opportunity. Mm. And yeah. I'll never stop learning. It's it's an endless reservoir of fun because it is literally impossible to learn everything. I so somebody said to me the other day that they keep going off on passions and then losing that passion and starting a new one and they wish they'd stick to them. And I said, no, just enjoy that while it happens because you will start to bring it all together when you're older. Mm. Um, no passion and no learning will ever be wasted. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that is so, so such valuable advice because there we tend to see like rabbit hole is what mm. that reminded me of is like going down a rabbit hole when you go into like a passion. That's negative connotations of that. Yeah. But in fact, like going down your interests and finding ways to connect them is how learning becomes just incredibly enjoyable. I mean, I can say for myself, I literally enjoy learning, unfortunately, outside of school more than in school because I get to create my own curriculum. And like, it's very difficult for me personally to have like a rigid structure that I can't break out of because I just love just jumping around mm. and then connecting things together. It's so fun. It's so fun. Well, one day um, you'll get to be old and like me, get allowed, you're allowed to do that all the time. All the time, yeah. Everybody's bits of experience put together are unique to them and mm-hmm. nobody else when people say, well, how did you make this connection that it appears other people have never made? Um, And then I've thought back, it's all, it's my physics. It's my parents' obsession with rationality. It's that I'm in Australia and got the oldest, um, longest continuous culture to talk to. But it's also that my husband decided to study archaeology and took me to Stonehenge where I didn't even want to go. And I started seeing well, hang on, this is just a memory palace. And then there's the, which meant there had to be um, these portable devices. Yes, I found them. They're the Stonehenge chalk plaques, the ditches, workers' performance spaces. You know, it all started, everything I was being taught from the Indigenous people was there at Stonehenge and I could do this big analysis, which was part of PhD yeah. in my academic book. Um, I couldn't have done that without drawing on all these weird things that I'd learned all my life. Yeah. Um, and so every one of those passions makes you unique and got a chance any moment of a question entering your head like, how the hell do they remember so much stuff? <laughs> Changing your life and taking you down a unique path that is not only fun and beautiful, but it can be valuable and you can pay back for the privilege of being educated. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Is is there any questions I haven't asked that you'd like me to ask? Oh, thousands. I'll talk. Thousands? <laughs> what would you say is one of the the ones that you really <laughs> wish I'd ask as like a last question? Um, probably about the, the medieval, uh, the Neolithic monuments, mm-hmm. the way that, if you start looking at those monuments, Stonehenge, but there's stone circles all over the world, and as my Klingit elder David Kanosh says, he's been seeing this in stone circles everywhere, but archaeologists never ask Indigenous people. But if you start looking at them in terms of the combination of memory techniques, not just memory palaces, 
you will find it all in the archaeology. So what those, they were not stupid people that were just going hoo-ha, hoo-ha to gods. They were storing massive amounts of information, and that's only 5,000 years ago. I mean, nothing compared to our guys here. Yeah. And you've got the same all over America. If you look at Poverty Point, the um, post circles at Poverty Point in Louisiana are, are almost identical dimensions to um, Stonehenge, but they, there's no stone in that area of Louisiana. They weren't chatting to each other, apart from the fact they're thousands of years apart, they're thousands of miles apart. They were using the human brain. It's the way it works. And we can have yeah. them all. We can do that and have everything we've already got as well. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I think we should dive into that as like the last little fun tangent then is like, can you go a little bit more into how ancient monuments were used to memorize vast amounts of information? Okay. So if you look at um, Cahokia in Illinois, yeah. they have a circle of timbers too. So if you imagine those timbers as um, totem poles, mm-hmm. which is what they almost certainly were, they were having stories. So they were using these circles, massive circles of timbers where each post was separate from each other. They're about 100 metres across the circles, um, and using each post as a memory location with the stories associated with it. You've then got the mounds for the performance performances. There's also lots of other stuff too. But if you start looking, and there were portable art devices, which would have worked as memory things, so like the Scottish carved stone balls. There's all sorts of weird theories. I showed one, the picture of one to an Aboriginal elder, and he said, Oh, they've done their um, Turinga, their memory devices, as spheres. That's interesting. Now let me tell you about why had nobody ever asked an Indigenous elder what these might be? These were non-literate cultures, all of them, and we shouldn't call them pre-literate, pre-literate or illiterate are cultures that will have literacy. These are non-literate, so our elders are the most knowledgeable. They don't have literacy, so non-literate or oral cultures all over the world, and the patterns are there everywhere because they're all using the same human brain that you and I have and every student and everyone in the world has, and we're using literacy, which is wonderful. I am an author, um, but we can have it all. We can use both. Yeah. We can take insight from our we can learn, ancestors. And we can learn from Indigenous cultures, not just about them. Yeah, which I think is such a different view of how a lot of people, including me before I read into these books, had. Is it was When I read about Indigenous cultures, it was more like, oh, what, what did we used to do as primitives? And yeah. now it's not like that at all. It's like, oh, my God, like... There's so much wisdom Mm. and knowledge inside of these cultures that we can take into today. Yep. My co-author on Songlines, Margot Neal, calls it the third archive. The first archive are the memory systems of oral cultures. The second archive is literacy and technology and all that. The third archive is a combination. She's a museum Mm. curator too. It's a combination and it is much more powerful than either archive by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to give up literacy. We can have the best of both. <laughs> Thank you so much for for that wonderful like deep dive into into aboriginal history, memory techniques and then bringing it like to today. Like as a student myself with two te- uh, parents that are both teachers, this was 
wonderful. Uh, so thank you so much, Lynn, for, for coming on. Uh